0: Hey, good morning, Collective. Uh, it's good to see, I always say see, I saw your names and your little icons on the YouTube chat uh, just a minute ago. And it's so weird to have all of this happening uh, each week on YouTube. I feel like instead of calling for prayer and communion, like hit the smash, you know, smash that like button and subscribe or something like that. But that's not what we're doing here. Um, it's, it's strange and yet we're still making headway. Uh, now reaching the halfway point, in our Story of Justice series. Let's get that off um, and we'll get rolling. So uh, as we get to the halfway point in our summer teaching series, The Story of Justice, um, all of this has been an attempt to develop and put together for our community a biblical theology of justice. Now, as a bit of uh, housekeeping, when, when, when I said bibl- biblical theology or kind of have alluded to that over the past few weeks, I know that for some uh, what what that has been synonymous for you in hearing is simply just saying like a, a Christian theology of justice or like a right the, belief, uh, right doctrine or teaching about justice. And and what that does then kind of sets us up for confusion of how we've laid out the series that way that we have. And so just a housekeeping, biblical theology of justice. What do we mean by this? Biblical theology is a particular form of studying the scripture, which seeks to present teaching on a theme or topic in a way that lets the story itself guide the agenda. Moving page by page through scripture, watching as different characters plot setting and development over the story of scripture, the 66 books of, of, of what we call the Bible, as that develops and has its ebb and flow and back and forth. So as the pastors, when we began to thought, think through how we were going to address the issue of justice this summer, we came to a biblical theology as our approach rather than what could be called a systematic or a topical theology of justice, where that would be maybe over the course of one or two Sundays, we would pull from all of the Bible and we would kind of just, you know, give you the highlight reel of, of, of what happened um, I'm not really a sports guy, but for some reason, the image that's coming to mind is like, you know, sports center every single night is they'll play over all the games that happened that day. And usually they'll show you one or two of the highlights as opposed to you watching the whole game. In some ways, a topical teaching on justice would be that we'd be giving you the highlights, but not the whole story, not the whole game as it were. And so this this idea is what we're trying to do is not just pull verses from the Bible, but to allow the whole framework of the story unpack before our eyes as it pertains to the issue of justice. And so that comes out of our commitment as a community collective church of being committed to deep reflection and study of the scriptures. Where usually we go verse by verse through a particular book of the Bible, like the Gospel of Mark earlier this year, or 1 Peter back in the fall. What we're doing in a biblical theology of justice is like instead of going verse by verse, we're going book by book. We're doing a a theology, a teaching on this at a macro level level. So when we talk about a biblical theology, I'm not just simply saying we're looking for the right theology. We're moving page by page to let the story unpack and unfold before our eyes, which means that as a narrative, there's tension that gets built up and then then a release of that tension and characters that we follow for a moment. It's not nice and clean and easy. It's not what we want the Bible to be like, but we have to remember it's a story. So housekeeping done. Where have we been? We're at the halfway point in this story so far. Back in chapter one, we looked at the foundation of justice, where we looked at Genesis chapter one through 11, where we saw uh, the image of God as being what every single human being is created with, a, a, a immense amount of dignity and value as God's royal representatives who through their forming and filling responsibility were meant to make this world a good and beautiful place. And however, as we have sought to form and fill the world according to what we think is good and bad. We actually have brought out injustice and sin at individual and generational and even at systemic levels. In week two, we moved into the family of justice, looking at Genesis 12 all the way through the end of Deuteronomy of Abraham and Moses and Israel and the law, the Torah of Israel given to them at Mount Sinai, where we looked at how the Bible fuses together the concept of justice and righteousness into one with justice being the act of putting things right as grounded in God's character, revealed in God's word, and ultimately is fulfilled in God's Son. Last week, Pastor Isaac in chapter 3 gave us the formation of justice, where we looked at the wisdom literature of the Bible, of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Now, these books move us in the direction of where we're going today, because the wisdom literature in King Solomon— uh, who they're normally attributed to being from or around or deeply connected to. Uh, this wisdom books came as an incredibly profound literature that emerged from like the Halcyon Age of Israel. During that reign of King Solomon, this guy was gifted with great wisdom. He was uh, ruling over Israel into this era of peace and prosperity. You can read about this in the book of 1 Kings. Through King Solomon, there was the construction of the temple where God's presence came and dwelt among his people. It became one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world. People from all over the world would come to see the temple on Mount Sinai. King Solomon built incredible palaces and gardens and even zoos. I mean, it was just insane what they built up of roads and government buildings. King Solomon, this age, was one of peace and prosperity with their neighbors. All these other warring tribes and nations had peace with Israel during this time, and they built up their trade. And through all this, King Solomon and Israel became the wealthiest king of his time. Now, all this comes together that it leads us to be believing towards uh, the first and second Kings right around this point in the story that, that maybe God's promise to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through you. I'm blessing you, Abraham, and your family to bless the nations. It's about to come true. Solomon, the temple, the zoos, and, and trade, it's, we're growing and it's okay. We're getting close. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to fast forward a few generations into chapter 4. Well, you know, begins in the story of Second Kings. What, what do we find? See, that unified kingdom that was on, I mean, it was, it was a, a, you know, utopian vision just, a, a, you know, so close. This ancient Israelite Wakanda that was right here and happening. Just a few generations later, what's happened is that unified kingdom has now fractured apart between the north and the south after a civil war. You see, you have up to the north, the uh, northern uh, Israel, the southern Judah. All of this divide then comes a famine that leads the people starving and hungry, where then Israel falls under the warring nation of Assyria, comes in and, and takes them out kills most, takes the rest out as exiles. The same happens to Judah under the nation and empire of Babylon just a couple of generations later, exiled as slaves. All those beautiful ornaments in the temple are taken out and smelted down and taken back to Assyria and Babylon. The temple, the palace, all the great buildings that have been built up in Solomon's age have all been burnt down. Everyone is either killed Exiled as slaves into Babylon or Syria, or the poor were left to work the land with nothing there to do. You see, that utopian vision that was within reach has now fallen into a post apocalyptic dystopian nightmare that is the kingdom of Israel. And so the question is what in the world happened between King Solomon's reign and the exile? In order to talk about this and to understand that, we have to talk about where we're going today in chapter four and the prophets. The prophets were a big group of 70 plus individuals. It gets hard to pin down because sometimes there'll be big groups of them, but some of the names you might recognize, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, even Deborah, Miriam, and and Isaiah's wife. In the Bible reading plan this week, I had you read one of the earlier prophets' works, the uh, book of Amos. Now, the prophets, when you go through and you begin to understand them, what you find in the Bible is that uh, in terms of page length, they contribute as many pages to your Bible as the New Testament. And think about that much space given, but how little we actually spend within the prophets. Jeremiah comes as the longest book. Everybody thinks it's the Psalms because it's got more chapters, but Jeremiah beats it by word count, by a long shot. You have this huge chunk of scripture that belongs to these characters called the prophets. But many of us have never read it at length, except for maybe, you know, Isaiah or Micah around Christmas time. See, it's difficult to understand these prophets' works because the fact that it exists within what we just talked about. This whole story of 1 and 2 Kings, of First Kings, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, and First and 2nd Chronicles, that there's a whole story, a history of Israel that the prophets come out of. And then this week, as you jumped in to read Amos, I bet you were confused because you found plot and characters and settings that you had no idea what you were dealing with. Leads to this confusion when we pick up and we start reading halfway into the story. What happens with the prophets then is when we don't understand the story that they're going on, this story of the fall of Israel, how they're playing within that, is we don't know what to do with them. And so we just bring our kind of modern assumptions about who the prophets are when we think about them. And so when we talk about the prophets, our assumptions then gravitate towards us seeing the word prophet or these figures as merely fortune tellers, as those who unveil the future. Most of us understand prophecy as being this kind of predictive thing. But the reality is, is that throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, yes, they may from time to time give a predictive statement about the future, but that is not the majority of their work. And so saying that prophecy is the prediction of future events is not a definition that's going to be acceptable for us moving forward, specifically today. Okay, so if it's not prediction, it's not fortune telling, it's not looking to the future, what is prophecy? Prophecy is a message given directly by God, to his prophet who serves as a spokesperson to convey that message to the hearers and for us, the readers. And so the, the prophet speaks the words of the Lord, the words of, of Yahweh. They, they contain the quoted speech of God. As you read through Amos, you found this personal pronouns left, right and center where Amos is saying, I, me, mine for things that it seems like belong to God. The prophet is like this spokesperson for God bringing this word to all of Israel, but most often in their crosshairs was the kings, the priests, the political leaders. And so this is, when we talk about the prophets, we, have, we, we, we miss out so much when we want to assume that they're fortune tellers and we miss out on the story that they're coming into. We miss who these people are because what we find within these books is some of the most powerful imagery and poetry in the Bible. It comes from the prophets, but also some of the most explicit jaw-dropping, shocking passages of scripture. Also some of the most humorous. We also find within them that they were not just a spokesperson through their words, but through their actions, through these really creative but shocking sign acts. The prophet Isaiah, who was naked for three years, walking around in the streets. You can read about this in Isaiah uh, chapter 20. He's walking around and he's naked for three years as this weird sign proclamation of this is how you all are going to be led out of Israel, out of Judah, when Assyria and Babylon comes. Jeremiah, he took his belt and he bound himself with it to, to give a physic walking around for some time with that. He took his loincloth, that's the, the ancient equivalent of his whitey tidies, and he put him out in some rocks out in the desert and let them get ruined, and then brought them back into town so that everybody could see this is what you have become. You have become this, this torn apart, useless piece of cloth uh, to God they have these crazy ways of doing this or ezekiel you've heard of ezekiel bread you've seen it at the grocery store uh, no doubt uh, what they don't bring into the way that they make the bread today is how ezekiel was was to cook the bread over cow dung as a sign and symbol to Israel that this is how you're going to be feeding yourselves is that you're not going to have any fuel any wood because uh, babylon's going to cut down all of our gardens and trees and all that will be left is to use cow dung as the fuel to cook your bread. It was just, these these prophets were working within a different world and we don't know what to do with them most of the time. And so the best way to understand the prophets is to bring together a bunch of concepts that would make a little more sense to us. The prophets were this weird amalgamation of preacher and lawyer of Banksy in those sign acts of a poet and a protester, but also a comedian all wrapped into one as God spoke through both their words and their actions in a really profound and distinct way, specifically against Israel. And so today, when we talk about chapter four and the failure of justice and the prophets, we just went through all of this because if we were to jump right into the prophets without talking about who they are and what's going on within the story, you would want to just assume that they're fortune tellers as opposed to seeing that they are these preacher protester, poet, Banksy, all wrapped into one that are coming with a a word from God at the time of Israel. And so today we're looking at the prophets, like I said. Old Testament scholar, Tim Mackey, he uh, pulls together and says, all of the prophets, remember this huge part of the Bible can be really summarized into three main buckets or themes. The first being accusation, repentance, and the day of the Lord these three big themes of accusation, repentance, and the day of the Lord. And so these big three buckets then are what we're gonna be looking at today because with with, a, with such a broad section of scripture, what's gonna be easier for us is to take those three big movements and to look at those for ourselves and kind of pull from everybody and see what they're saying there. And so we're gonna be looking at all three of those buckets, really pulling from the first one where the prophets spend most of their time is on the issue of accusation, but we will definitely be getting to repentance in the day of the Lord. So thank you for being uh, patient over the past Uh, goodness me, 10, 12 minutes as we made our way through just setting up where we're going today. Um, I understand that this series has been, you know, doing a biblical theology is not short and easy and succinct, but the desire of your pastors is for you to see the whole story of scripture pointing to this and not just a couple of cherry-picked verses. And so let's pray and then uh, let's take a deep breath and then let's get into the prophet's work themselves. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for collective God, in the midst of uh, this season, uh, we understand that uh, what we may want is for your word uh, merely to um, comfort us. And yet, though your word comforts us, it always uh, it also encourages, and it, and it, but it also challenges us to see the areas in our lives where we have rejected a deep worship and trust in you. And so my prayer today is that the prophet's words would carry some of the weight they did for that original audience. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that there would be a boldness like a prophet, but also a gentleness like a pastor and a shepherd. Help me uh, to know when to lean into each one for our people. And I pray that you would give us ears and hearts that would not be like Israel's, but that we would be open and soft to hear where your word goes today. Thank you. Let me pray. Amen. All right, well, let's first get into the first bucket with accusation and looking at the words of Hosea 4, beginning in verse 1, where he writes, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy, a controversy. It's the Hebrew word for a lawsuit or a legal dispute in Hosea's original Hebrew that he was writing in. So here, the Lord has a lawsuit. He has a legal dispute with the inhabitants of the land, that is with Israel. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Like I mentioned a moment ago, the prophets are lawyers and here we see it. They are these covenant lawyers who emerge into history, given a word from God and and specifically to call out the absence of covenant faithfulness on the behalf of Israel. They're, They're bringing a controversy, a lawsuit, a legal dispute. And if you notice how uh, right there, that there is a swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, is, is Hosea's literally replaying the 10 commandments. He's literally going, you know what the issue is, is that those, those, the 10, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments, the 10 words that God gave to his people, you guys have been unfaithful to this. You have not been the family of justice that God called you to be through his law. Abraham Heschel in his book, The Prophets, simply says that the prophets look at history from the point of view of justice, judging its course in terms of righteousness and corruption, of compassion and violence. This is how they view history. The prophets emerge as covenant lawyers, and they have come to either judge Israel as guilty or innocent when it comes to their calling to be God's people of justice. Isaiah 10, verse 1 and 2 continues this where the prophet Isaiah picks up and says, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. The widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless the prey. So what's Isaiah talking about here? He's talking about those who are, he's taking to task those who use unjust legislation, in the land that stops up justice or breeds injustice. That riders of iniquitous decrees, writing oppression, those who do decrees of iniquity. This is language of legal writing. So he's specifically calling out not those who just individually perpetuate injustice, but those who are enacting laws of the land that perpetuate injustice. Notice the individuals that Isaiah appoints to who are suffering this. It's who, the needy, the poor, the widows, and the fatherless. This is what most biblical scholars refer to as the quartet of the vulnerable as they include within that scope, the immigrant, the sojourner, or the refugee as it can be translated. These four, the poor, the needy, the widows, the fatherless, and the sojourner or the refugee or the immigrant are who the prophets are constantly talking about. This quartet of the vulnerable as biblical nerds like me like to call them. And so why are they the vulnerable ones? Well, in Israel at this time was really a a, a loose network of patriarchal tribal farming communities that were all working on ancestral family land. And so here's the thing. If you don't own land, that is you were an immigrant or poor, or you didn't have a male landowner as your guardian, that is you were a widow or an orphan, you were without a social web of support and protection. You were the vulnerable the most vulnerable within the society. This is who Jesus calls the least of these in Matthew 25. Those that least of these not in value, but in the social structure. This is the quartet of the vulnerable, the group that was not only disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, but disproportionately regularly its victims. For the prophets and God speaking through them, remember that. Israel's treatment of the quartet of the vulnerable served as the barometer for their covenant faithfulness. And Israel was held to such a high standard because as you read in Amos 3, 2 this week, you only Israel have I known, says the Lord. You are the only ones that I've made this covenant with. And so I'm going to judge you more strictly, which is why God looks at their treatment, not of the majority, but the most vulnerable within the community. The prophet's, spend their books and their preaching looking at Israel, asking the question, does the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, or the poor's lives matter to you? Tim Keller puts it this way in his um, teaching called Justice and Justification. He says, if you aren't intensely concerned for the quartet of the vulnerable, it's a sign that your heart is not right with God. He just puts it that flatly. And so you can take uh, Tim Keller, the Protestant Pope, as many call him, to task on that. And so to, to bring all this together then in a really practical way within your discipleship groups this week is just to simply ask the question, who are the vulnerable? In our nation, yes. In our city, absolutely. But more specifically, in your neighborhood, in your area of actual physical embodied influence, who are the vulnerable there? And in certain pockets here on the West Side, are there any that you can actually think of? For those of us that find ourselves in, in safer community, I mean, I know we know how the West Side is. The, the, the question should be, as a disciple of Jesus, are there anybody, is there anyone vulnerable that I actually have a regular connection with that, that, that the prophets would be calling me to administer justice rightly for? So as we ask this question, and as you spend time in your discipleship groups, what will likely come is an acknowledgement that in our nation, it's less of a quartet for little groups of the vulnerable and more of a choir or a symphony at times. And so here within our nation, it's absolutely the fatherless and the widows like it was for Israel, but it's also the elderly, for the refugee, the migrant worker, for the homeless, for the unborn, for single mothers, for the intellectually or physically disabled. This is the vulnerable class that the prophets would be looking to our treatment of and judging us accordingly. Similarly, it'd be the 50 million Americas, the 25% of American children that are food insecure. That means they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And that, that number comes pre-COVID-19. And so the odds are that number is even higher now. You see, there is a a vulnerable community at work that if the prophets were to walk within our neighborhoods today, these would be the folks that they would be looking to to judge our covenant faithfulness, not simply our devotional life or our prayers or our church attendance. Good as those things are. It would be, how is the vulnerable treated amongst you? And as it has been set on the public stage under bright lights over the past few months, for many, for many of us seeing it for the very first time is the particular vulnerability experienced by our black, native, and neighbors of color. You see, if the prophets were to walk around our nation, were to walk around our country today, thinking about for Israel in their time, the iniquitous decrees and laws of the land that brought about injustice or the individual sin and injustice that came out of people, what would the prophets say to you and me? If these are the barometer of our covenant faithfulness to God, of our, prom, of our commitment to the God that we call King. We should order our lives and our priorities accordingly if we seek to be faithful to the prophet's words to Israel. We need to hear what the prophets are saying regarding injustices experienced by, in particular for them, the courts of the vulnerable. Let's keep going. One more uh, little passage here is a turning point in Jeremiah chapter seven, verses five through six, where Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God, calls out and says, for if you Israel, my people amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice, let's just do justice with one another, if you do not oppress, look here, we've got the quartet showing up again, the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed blood in this place, specifically innocent blood in this place. And then Jeremiah adds strangely, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm. So notice that Jeremiah here has this weird, strange connection where he's talking about the quartet of the vulnerable, doing and executing justice. And then he adds in this, if you do not go after other gods. What, what's the connection there, Jeremiah? You might be thinking. You see, this brings us into the second accusation of the prophets. The first being injustice, the second being idolatry or syncretism. I know that's the fun word. Idolatry is just simply this this going after and worshiping something other than God. Syncretism is the blending of God with another, whether that's a pagan deity or idol worship. It's syncretism. It's, it's, It's a blending that happens there. And what's interesting is that throughout the prophets and and all of the Old Testament, we never find Israel outright go, um, by God, we're gonna go over and we're gonna worship this God. Rather, left, right, and center every single time what Israel was guilty of was this blending, this syncretism of worship where alongside worshiping Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, they would bring in the worship of Baal, of the Asherah, of Marduk, of Moloch, of Dagon, and their worship through these physical idols of wood, silver, and gold. You can find uh, archaeological evidence of this through this old um, pottery shard that was found that was entitled Yahweh and his Asherah, that is his, his bride or his wife. And it depicted Yahweh as this as this bull, like a cow, like a golden calf with a a female cow next to him. Do you see there was never an outright rejection of Yahweh, of the God of Israel, but a blending and merging and bringing in other spiritual beings that were worthy of worship alongside him. It was a syncretism. And this is what the Israelite prophets were always going after. This week you read Amos 5, some of you yesterday or this morning, where the prophet says, don't uh, seek uh, Gilgal or enter uh, Bethel or cross over to Beersheba. These were the locations where the temples and sacrifices happened for these pagan gods. They're constantly calling them back from this idolatry, this idea of setting anything at a greater than or equal to level than God anything that receives equal to or greater than levels of your love, your trust, your hope, and your obedience. We're getting into what the prophets call idolatry. And this idolatry is what the prophets, it's this idea of a divided heart, a divided love, where I am sharing my obedience and trust and hope and love, not just only with God, but also with something else. It was why the prophets regularly talked about idolatry through the metaphor, the analogy of adultery. Some of the most explicit, jaw-dropping, the uncomfortable passages of scripture are when the prophets are talking about idolatry as adultery and they tease that metaphor out all the way to the point where your eyes are aghast and you can't believe that this is in the Bible. And they're using the shocking language to try to wake Israel up. But again, to bring this all back together, what you can't miss here is how Jeremiah 7 and all these other passages throughout the prophets is that that Jeremiah 7 connects the injustice of Israel to the idolatry of Israel. They're connected. Idolatry and injustice are connected issues. They are two sides of the same coin that the biblical authors call sin. Idolatry is when we sin against God. And injustice is when we sin against one another or ourselves. And they are not only two sides of the same coin, but they feed one another because they're more than just partnered. They're paired together as Israel's failure of justice flowed from their failure of worship. Because at the end of the day, we become like what we worship. Psalm 115 puts it explicitly, uh, but the prophets pick up on this analogy all of the time where the psalmist writes, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. These little idols that he's talking about here. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. And they do not walk, even though they have legs and they don't make a sound in their throat. They don't talk. And then, so what's he just doing? He's describing little idols that, you know, people have carved ears and noses and all these things. They can carve that stuff into them all day long, but they can't talk. They can't, they're not a living being. And then it says, those who make them become like them. Those who make idols become like their idols. And so do all who trust in idols. You see the powerful metaphor that the psalmist picks up on Isaiah himself does as well. That this metaphor of when you go and you worship a metal or a stone idol, The the, the psalmist saw that something happens to you over time where you become like that thing. You become what you behold. You reflect what you revere. You cease to become a living human when you worship something other than the living God. Even more so than not just in you becoming like a metal idol, but when you think about the fact that the pagan gods were vengeful and violent and self-obsessed and dehumanizing, that the pagan gods didn't get involved with justice, because they themselves were unjust spiritual beings within the pantheon of how they understood these spiritual beings. And so what their worship led to is the people of Israel sacrificing, quite literally, their children on the altar of Dagon where because they followed after these gods, Jeremiah 34 connects the idolatry of Israel to the fact that they were oppressing their slaves. Micah connects the worship of idols to the corrupt land ownership laws that were happening within Israel. It's an ancient uh, version of, of um, red zoning. If you go to Amos, you can find that idolatry led to selling people, slavery. Slavery. Nehemiah and Malachi talk about how that what happened within Israel was them divorcing their wives, men divorcing their wives, leaving them vulnerable again in a patriarchal culture and running off and marrying women from these pagan nations taking on their gods. All of this, it just continue. You can, you can trace through. This could have been the whole teaching is just all of the ways that idolatry leads to injustice. Jeremiah 3, 22 through 23 even points out that the worship of these gods led to orgies on top of these mountains that were happening within the people of God, these people that were meant to be the family of justice. And you just see over the course of these generations, what was happening with the failure of justice. The reality is, is that with all of this, we become what we worship. We reflect what we revere. We become what we behold. And if that's true, then it was Israel's idolatry that bred Israel's injustice. Now, this might lead some of us to go, well, those silly Israelites back in the day, they're worshiping statues and these pagan spiritual beings, like we know better now. Not so fast, not so fast. David Foster Wallace, uh, who the LA Times called one of the most influential and innovative writers of the last 20 years, passed away a handful of years ago, but his, his big book that everybody knows him for is this, you know giant thing, infinite jest. Um, but he gave a commencement speech called This Is Water. And in it, he says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are the default settings of our lives. You see, what David Foster Wallace develops over the course of this his commencement speech is that to fill the void of the supernatural that was kind of left after we moved into the post enlightenment age is that now he says that the gods have simply been replaced, or as I would argue, is that these idols that Israel worshipped that were connected to, from the biblical perspective, actual spiritual beings, uh, demonic, evil spiritual beings, have simply been rebranded. They, they understand that, nobody's, that, that most people in the West today aren't going to sit down and bow at an altar to some little piece of wood or metal. And so they've had to rebrand themselves in the modern age. Tim Keller develops this at length in his book, Counterfeit Gods, where he details our idols and how the worship of those idols result in injustice, the idolatry that leads to injustice. Let's spend some time just going through a handful of them today. Um, Because I found this really helpful just to check my own heart this week. The first type of idol, the first type of rebranded God is uh, a relational idol, relationships. This idea being that when we make relationships, the end all be all of our lives, we worship it. We set our relationships on an equal or greater than value to the creator God. What leads to is what? The injustice of codependency both for those receiving it and giving it. When it comes to a, a uh, injustice of manipulation within our relationships. That I have to have you in order to be me. This relational idolatry leads for us to place undue burdens on our spouses, undue burden on our children, on our parents, on our friends, or an undue burden on our singleness. Do you see the relational idols that are at work? And it's not that relationships are bad but it's that when we give them an emphasis and a place within our hearts that they're not meant to be at, it leads to deep injustice done. Similarly, we can make uh, sexuality an idol, our sex life an idol. What, What happens within this is that we unjustly then move into using and abusing others and even using and abusing our own bodies at the altar of connection or pleasure, whatever it might be. It's it's another way of, we are literally sacrificing our lives. And in some cases with something like pornography, sacrificing our ability to actually connect with someone at the level of some kind of smaller form or various form of pleasure connection. This even connects into the way that we abuse ourselves under the ideals of physical beauty. Let's keep rolling. We can make an idol of all things out of religion where moralism and legalism, develop within us because it's not that God is our God. It's that this religious system is our God. And so we have to be overly moralistic or overly legalistic. And then as we do so, we begin to protect our own tribe or our own little church community. And then that leads to the injustices of spiritual abuse. Similarly, we can make an idol out of religious liberty where that becomes the end all be all. And as conversations have happened within churches over the past few months, where we see ourselves as being okay with sacrificing potentially the health of others because of the fact that we need to appease the God of religious liberty as we understand it. You see, there's an idolatry here. Whatever you're willing to sacrifice something important for, that is at some level, it just shows your priorities. And when we're able to sacrifice everything and anything for one thing, it develops and shows an idolatry that's there. We can also have cultural idols that develop within our own hearts. One of the prominent ones within our culture is that of radical individualism. And now this leads to injustice because what happens is we prioritize our rights, our desires, our joy, our happiness, our wants over and against anything and everything that would make a claim against what I want And what my happiness is. Insofar as really what happens is that they cost me something. I was reading an article uh, this past week that was lamenting the fact that radical individualism is undermining and destroying the West's moral compass. That our moral compass has no longer been set on what's best for us What's, what, what is necessary for this to be a royal or a, a moral community, but rather it's about what I want and what I need. And so don't enforce anything on me that gets in the way of my joy and my happiness. And, and they pointed to, in particular, the, 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 the protests and everything that's been going on specifically around wearing masks and around social distancing. For them, what they saw was this was an example of what's happening in a culture when people don't want anyone to say anything that would be an inconvenience to them, to impose anything that would come against them. The the idol of radical individualism is showing its face there. We can also trace out cultural idols of careerism where we sacrifice everything and anything, even our own relationships on the altar of that next step, that next promotion, that next job offer. We can sacrifice. It's it's an idolatry at work here. And what that leads to is an injustice that we do against our relationships and against our own bodies as we sacrifice others on the altar of our own career advancement. There's also the idol of the uh, economic. I mean, Colossians 3.5, the apostle Paul goes so far as to simply say that greed is idolatry. And so what does this idolatry of greed and and economic growth look at? Well, um, it looked like slavery within the United States. It looks like slavery to this day. It looks like slave-like conditions for many working people around the world because of the economic implications of those who are able to receive. The economic idols look like the 1.4 trillion, that's with a T and an R, dollars in credit card debt within our nation. Similarly, the economic idolatry, again, the sacrifice language, you look for that and you'll find an idol, comes as pundits show up and say that we need to be okay with sacrificing the elderly on the altar of the economy. Regardless of whatever you think about the economy and our nation and what we're going on, you have to acknowledge that when sacrifice language comes up, we're talking about letting go of one thing for the sake of the other. And there's there's an idol, there's an idol there. Similarly, we can get into uh, racial or cult. I mean, this is like water hose right now, but I'm just giving you guys the list and then I want your discipleship groups you to work through some of these. Uh, There's also the racial or national idols, which what happens when we make uh, race or ethnicity or our nation some level of idol, what happens is it leads to the injustice of, of militarism, of nationalism, of colonialism, and even racism. As Dr. George Kelsey put it in, uh, as he was quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? He puts it simply, racism is a faith system. It is a form of idolatry. It is a form of me and my people. And I'm giving myself and guys, people and gals that look like me, a higher level of value and worth of trust and love and hope and obedience than you. Most prominent within our, our, our nation right now is the political idolatry. Where we emerge on the scene is we demonize what's not completely bad on their side and we idolize what's not the ultimate good on our own. Like Israel with the Asherah in, in the syncretism, the blending in America so often, the, it is not that, that we outright reject God and we run off after the idol of the donkey or the elephant, but that we blend our worship Where we, you know, on on the pottery, we put together a picture of Yahweh, our God, and we chisel in the elephant or the donkey next to him. And we see them as the two gods worthy of all of our sacrifice, our trust, our hope, our love, and our obedience. Finally, the final idol we'll spend some time on is on philosophical idolatry. Now, this is an interesting one because what happens here is when this idolatry occurs, when systems of human created thought where some human created system is the problem. So it's a human thought that comes against some human created system as being the main problem within our world rather than it being sin or idolatry. And so what happens is when that occurs, it leads to then the solution being human created enterprises, which will fix everything instead of God at work through his son, Jesus, and now at work through his church by the powering work of his Holy Spirit. So to put it, very, very explicitly, there is a form of idolatry that gets connected to the work of social justice. Where over the course of our lives and our times, and I'm seeing it explicitly right now, we give greater or equal trust, hope, love, and obedience to the philosophical ideals of how we're going to get out of this mess rather than what God is calling us to be as a people. Now, I'm not saying, again, we just spent 20, where are we at? We're way too long into this teaching already. And we've spent so much time talking. This is not an outright rejection of justice, but it is that justice is not an ends to itself, but it is a means of worship to the creator God as we see his image implanted on one another. And when we take God out of that conversation and we simply have it be around the God of justice and equity, it leads to injustice, surprisingly. How so? Well, injustice occurs where because of the fact that we've asked God to leave the building and the conversation around justice is that although we may have by God's common grace, some ideals of justice that are right and would even line up with scripture, because God's not a part of the conversation, we can take it to places that by God's order and his wisdom would never take us. When we begin to dictate good and evil for ourselves and then we act accordingly. You see, it's a whole worship system. It's a whole faith system when we allow ourselves to get wrapped up into that idolatry where a cancel culture is one of those prevalent forms of sacrifices like we've talked about, where we find the wretched, the witch, right? And we burn them at the stake to appease the God of social justice, where we uh, virtue signal as well as the equivalent of you walking into the church of social justice and raising your hands so everybody can see just how religious, how devoted you are to the God of justice, You see, it continues in all of these ways and it ultimately leads to an injustice against ourselves. So I'm in a conversation with a friend of mine uh, this past week who has been with Collective since back in January, but doesn't identify as a Christian and and yet has been with us through all the COVID stuff, checking out each week. And we've been talking uh, each week just through all this stuff. And um, here's this individual who is so convicted, rightly so, and concerned about the issues of justice and yet what he was finding after, you know, however far we are into this month and in, in, in these months and this whole discussion specifically around racial injustice is he was lamenting how overwhelmed and exhausted he was. That, that as he was spending his time getting into how many the injustices, the story of our nation and the story of our world, this is not an issue you can move away from. It follows you. There is such a deep thread of injustice in this world that the problem was, was that the social justice idolatry system promised that if everybody got educated enough, everybody cared enough, everybody tweeted enough, everybody voted enough, that we could finally absolve all of these issues. And the reality is, is that though history is bent in the direction of justice, it is not because of humanity, but God's spirit at work within his people. And so my friend here was seeing the cracks in the idol of justice this past week that what was happening was that he and many others, some of you have been carrying the burden of injustice within this world on your shoulders. You have deemed yourself as the Messiah and Savior, where if everybody would just think and act and be like you and vote like you, the world would be fixed. And the reality is, is that you are taking a responsibility that belongs to God himself and his son, Jesus Christ, that he is the one. And so we don't have to bear that burden. I'm going off on a tangent now. So all of these temptations, all of these idols within us um, are, are, are present, um, that nobody's limited to just one of these idols either. But then in many ways, these idols are okay to share the, the, the space of your heart as long as they can take a little bit more of what you would usually give to God. And so we go into the buffet of idolatry each week and we're leveling everything up. We fill our plates with a little bit of this and a little bit of that as all of the food kind of blends together. We mix together our cultural individualism with uh, our sexuality, our politics with our economic idols, our religious idolatry with our political idolatry, or our philosophical Philosophical, social, whatever, whatever language we wanna use their idolatry with political, it all merges together. And the reality is, is that none of these things are inherently bad relationships, sex, politics, ethnicity, justice, all of these things are great and good gifts of God. The work of idolatry is when we take good things and we elevate them to a status and place they cannot be at and they can't bear the weight. And so all they can bring back on us is destruction of ourselves and others. So we need to appropriately set all of these good gifts where they are and and allow God himself to be the one that stays on the throne of our own heart, who gets the source and most of our love, our hope, our trust, and our obedience. And so we need to be deeply aware of the proclivity of our hearts because the issue is, is that so many of us want to run off to justice or obedience or being a good disciple or a good Christian all the while having these little idols that are actually the motivating charge behind some of these things. And so... In that deep awareness, I would encourage you in your discipleship groups this week, just to you know, maybe look over this list again and, and to ask, what idols are present within your own heart? Which are you tempted towards? I'd be willing to wager that as an experiment with your discipleship group, you could uh, pin your main idols by auditing your social media feeds and posts over the past few weeks. Just go through. What were your posts? What were your stories? Go through your YouTube. What's the algorithm showing you? Go through your Facebook. What are the ads that are popping up? The reality is is that these little robot algorithms are so smart that they might be able to do a better job pinning your idols than your own heart can. Because the heart is really, really wicked and deceitful, as Jeremiah puts it, to get back to the prophets. But the reality is, okay, so let's bring this all together. There's a lot of space on idolatry, but the whole point of this is that in the story of justice, we can't Just talk about injustice. We have to talk about its root, which is idolatry, going all the way back to Genesis, but put on center stage by the prophets. So the reality is we become what we worship. We reflect what we revere. We become what we behold, both for good and for bad. And so, and for good, the reality is, is that if we run from idols back to right worship of the true and living God, we will find ourselves becoming true and living human beings who do right justice which is exactly the prophet's second movement of repentance. And we're gonna move a little bit quicker through the back half, I promise you. Um, Ezekiel 18, verse 30 through 32. It's the prophet Ezekiel calling out on behalf of God. Therefore, the Lord says, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. repent. And turn from all of your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. This is God speaking, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. You see, the call of the prophets was not simply the call of the accusation of injustice and idolatry, but regularly and often a call to turn back, to return to God, to be restored, to cast away idolatry and injustice. But but how did Israel respond? Many of them rejected the prophets outright. Micah chapter 2 verse 6 emerges as one example of an often uh, repeated refrain within the prophet's When the prophets would come and would call out idolatry and injustice, the people of Israel would say, as Micah quotes them, do not preach. One should not preach of such things. And Micah, he's specifically calling out the leaders of the land that were writing in unjust um, land ownership laws. He's calling that out as an issue of injustice. And these people rise up and they go, you should not preach about those things. This rejection of the prophets led for many of the prophets to be killed by Israel. They just didn't want to put up with their words. So the question is that as we move from those accusations of idolatry and injustice into the issue of repentance, the question to ask yourself is, are there any topics in that list that we just hit on that you don't think the Bible should speak to? And then to not ask, is not God the God over all things? That he gets a claim over all of your heart and all of your life that he, through his word, gets to dictate what he calls idolatry and what he gets to call injustice and not you. And so the reality is for all of us, and this happened for me this week in reading over the prophets, is those moments where I find myself irked by the words of scripture are scratched up against is that that should not be an invitation to throw it away or to cast it off as being wrong but a moment for me to see that maybe the reality is is that I have an idol within my heart that does that gets spooked when the light of scripture shines on it and it fights back. And maybe there's an invitation for me to bring this out. And this is in particular, not just when we're reading the scripture, but I would, I would I humbly argue as well that this is particularly one of the responsibilities that God has called your pastors to do in a series like this. And this is, this is, again, with all humility. It's not like I've got this figured out or Lorenzo has it figured out in a few weeks when he preaches or Isaac last week, but, but as th- that we are going to answer to God for how we handle these scriptures. And so together, as we're reflecting on this, the things that scratch and irk ought to be the moments that we ask together, what is this calling out of us? But even more than that, some of us that don't reject Some of us that don't walk away. Some of us that don't want to kill me or the prophets. Others of of, of Israel, what they would do is whenever this would come up, the prophets would show up. Israel, oh, heartbroken. And then what they would do is they'd go to the temple. They would confess their sins. They would make sacrifices to God. And and even fast as a result of seeing this injustice being called out. But the reality is, is that oftentimes over the course of the months and the years, everything would return back to the way that it was. Because... The sort of repentance that they were bringing was not the kind of repentance God was looking for. Look with me in Isaiah 58, verses six through eight, where the Lord says, is not this the fast that I choose? And again, the fast is a a practice of confession of sin and repentance of mourning over sin. And so God says, is this not the sort of repentance that I choose? to loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, that's the idea of a big wooden bar that you would put on animals and then later on put on, on slaves, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. This idea of God's presence resting over you. Do you want that sort of experience where your righteousness goes before you and God walks behind you as your protector? You want that? Execute, do justice, administer justice rightly. Put things right according to my righteousness as the Lord would say or as Micah 6 verse 8 says to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So the question to consider is simply, what injustices or idolatries do you repent of or even fast over, but repeatedly have not been put right? That you have not taken, and this isn't only on issues of justice. This is on issues of any sin, of gossip, of, of, uh, of hatred or injustice or anger. This, this happens all over the place. But let's move into the final theme, the final third, where we find the day of the Lord as the final theme is we're, we're now, beginning to wrap up and I I can't see you. So I can't like thank you all. Um, This is a big chunk of Bible that we're doing in in one week. And so um, I'm grateful uh, for those of you hanging in. I know we've got two kids at home and Aaron's being an all-star right now, trying probably to watch. Obadiah 1, verse 15. Let's look at this, where it says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. So what the prophets regularly pointed to this day of the Lord. As you have done, it shall be done to you your deeds shall return on your own head. This is what Bible scholars and nerds, we call the the golden rule of God's judgment. You know, the golden rule is what do unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. The golden rule of God's judgment here in Obadiah and in other places is as you have done, so it will be done to you. The prophets pointed to this day of the Lord, as they called it, when God would finally enact retributive justice against human injustice And sin, as Johnny Cash puts it, when the man would come around, when their idolatry and injustice would be turned back on them, when they would receive just judgment. So the prophets talked about this coming day for Israel when it happened with, as we talked about earlier, the fall of Israel with the famine, with the exile into slavery, the destruction of their their city and their entire community. The reality is was God was lifting his protection over them as he said, okay, you steal from the poor, You guys get to go hungry now. You destroyed and murdered. Okay, now the nations, that's what you want? That's what the nations will now do for you. You enslave and mistreat others? Okay, okay. You'll receive the same treatment from the Assyrians and Babylon's. You guys wanna be one of the pagan nations with the pagan gods? Okay, I'll lift off my covenant, my promised protection and allow them to come in and, and take the land. See, this is, it's just the reality that, that for those that continue in idolatry and injustice, that the creator God does not let it go off the hook. That God gets the final word at human injustice in this world, even if that doesn't get enacted in this life. You see, the day of the Lord though for Israel was not just limited to Israel, but actually God throughout history, there's actually days of the Lord that happened. This day of the Lord was a way of talking about whenever God steps into human history and does something divisive against, or decisive against human injustice and sin. And they prophesied the day that it would also come for all of the nations, not just Israel. And it happened for Babylon and for Assyria. For Nineveh, it happened all of the time. And even as we move into the New Testament, we find that the early church saw that 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 global day of the Lord was still yet to come when God would enact retributive justice on human idolatry and sin. That it was not just a calendar event, but something that God regularly did. Now, that day of the Lord was meant to be the final call of repentance But the prophets in the absence of that repentance and they knew that they were gonna go into exile, that's some of the the predictive work, the fortune telling, I guess you could say that the prophets did. Even in the midst of it, it was not the end of the story as we begin to come to a close. Ezekiel 36, 24, where the prophet says, speaking on behalf of God, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'm gonna undo the exile. I'm gonna bring you home. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. That is forgiveness of sin. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. They see the injustice and the idolatry there. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove that heart of stone. Remember the idols, those who worship the idols become like stone themselves. And I'm going to give you a heart of real, true, living flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Go back a few weeks, the Hebrew word mishpat, to obey my justice. You see, the prophets brought a really hard word of God for people that needed to hear it, but they didn't. They stopped up their ears. They needed to hear that the God was the God of retributive justice, that he would bring that on human sin and idolatry. But even then, the prophets reminded us and pointed to the fact that God's heart beats to the drum of restorative justice and that for the prophets, there was coming another day of the Lord when the exile would be reversed, when idolatries and injustice would be cleansed and forgiven so that God could give to Israel and all of the world what they could not do for themselves, a new heart and a new spirit so they truly could become the family of justice that God always desired them to be. But how? For the prophets, this restorative day of the Lord would come not through some moment, not through the people doing social justice, not through politics, not through a particular individual who the prophets would talk about it sometimes being God himself, other times as the anointed Messiah, a king from David's line, the son of man, the suffering servant. Isaiah gives us one example of who this individual would be. who says, surely he being that suffering servant, that God coming to kick off this restorative day of the Lord. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we have like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all the restorative justice of God would come to God's people and to the nations as through this mysterious figure who would somehow bear the retributive justice of God for them. He would bear their guilt. He would embark on their exile. He would receive their destruction so they could be forgiven. They could be welcomed home and they could be restored unto life. And just like that, that expectation for some individual, Malachi and the Old Testament, the prophets come to a close with 400 years of anticipation and silence, waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this new day of the Lord. And next week, we're gonna turn the page into the New Testament with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the arrival of that prophetically anticipated day of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who is God himself. He is the Messiah. He is that Davidic King. He is the son of man and the suffering servant who through his death on the cross would bear the just judgment of our idolatry and injustice through his death, where he would be exiled so that we could be brought near. Where through his resurrection and the sending of his spirit, he would give us, like Ezekiel prophesied, new hearts and a new spirit so that we, through faith in him, might be saved from our failure of justice and be reclaimed as his new family of justice. And so as we close today, the next two weeks, the story of justice brings us to the central focal point of the entire story in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so let's pray.